This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, March 26th, 2017, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Brian Dixon. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Amen. Thank you, Kevin. Praise God. Thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, if you're new or visiting, just a special welcome, and uh, thank you to you for joining us as well. Um, this past couple days, uh, we're part of a, a network of churches called Three Strand, and we had a retreat where the pastors, elders got together, and uh, one was to just have fellowship with one another, part of it was to worship together, but the big part of it was that our church leaderships could break off and we could have time together to pray for our churches, to cast some vision for our churches and things like that. And, and one of the things that was just overwhelming as we were talking and praying was just how much we're thankful for all of you and just thankful for this church. Um, the love that is poured out that we see that's given to us in leadership, but to each other. Um, we were kind of countlessly going through different scenarios and times when we didn't have to go and be a part of an issue or something because the church took care of it. People took care of each other, and it was just really cool to be reminded of those things. Um, and so I am just thankful that I get to be a part of this body, that I get to share from God's Word this morning uh, with you. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 44, so we're not going to have the, the verses up on the screen. We invite you to open your Bibles and uh, read along with us. As you are turning there to Genesis chapter 44, uh, I just want to take just a little bit of time to recap the narrative of Joseph's story and, and where we're at and what we're going to be talking about today. Joseph's story begins in chapter 37, and uh, as a whole, as we, as we look at this um, narrative, we're seeing that it's teaching us or it's highlighting God's uh, divine providence for the ultimate good of his people to fulfill uh, God's covenant promises. It also follows this pattern seen throughout the Bible of God's chosen deliverers being rejected, with even the rejection playing a crucial part in the process of deliverance. Jesus himself is the ultimate example of this. Chapter 42 is where we see uh, this conflict begin between Joseph and his brothers. Joseph has risen in power equal to Pharaoh uh, because he was able to interpret his dream. So now he's been placed in this position uh, over um, everyone, distributing food, while his brothers are starving and kind of laying around, their dad comes out, Jacob, and is like, and I love it when you read through it, just like, why are you guys looking at each other? We need food. You need to go into Egypt and get us some food. And in this interaction, the brothers, you know, they, they get together, and then they, they go and they head out. Uh, but there's one that doesn't, and it's Benjamin. And he's the new favored son of Jacob. See, Jacob has already lost a son a favorite son, and that was Joseph, and he's not going to lose another. So Benjamin stays behind. The rest of the brothers go, and they're waiting to get their food, and, and here they are. In God's providence, they're standing before Joseph. The text says that they're unaware that it is Joseph. They're just going to get their food, but Joseph recognizes his brothers. And imagine just for a moment what that must have been like for Joseph. Here are his brothers 
standing before him. Joseph, the betrayed, the imprisoned, becomes the master of the fate of his own starving brothers. The text tells us that uh, he treats them, or speaks roughly with them, treats them as strangers, accuses them of being spies. And they're like, oh, what's going on? No, no, we're honest men. Please, please don't. Let, it, let us prove it to you. This, you know, we're honest men. And he's, no, nope, you're spies. I know it. You've come here to see the nakedness of our land. Like, no. I mean, as you read through it, it's just, I love they're just kind of like, what? You know, you can just sense this like, what is going on? Joseph puts his brothers in jail for three days. After that, he comes to them and the first test kind of begins. He says, all right, if you're honest men, I want you to go home. I want you to get your youngest brother and bring him back. And until you do so, I'm keeping Simeon here. Okay. At the same time, he puts back the money in their bags that they use to, to buy food. And so as they're going back, they realize this, like, wait, what's going on? The money has been put back. And I think Joseph is testing his brothers. He's giving them basically no reason to come back. You have food, you have money, you have everything you need. Are these the same brothers that got rid of me that are willing to just let Simeon go? Are they really truly repentant? Are they different? Have they changed? I think essentially this is what Joseph is trying to discern if his brothers have truly repented or not. The Apostle Paul describes it um, as this, the difference between worldly grief and godly grief. And I'll share this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. See, Joseph is working out in his brother's lives the same hard lesson he had to learn himself from God. And that is, it is the adversity of life that softens us to make us open to the Lord's grace. Can you imagine what it was like for Joseph to be in prison and, and all this time in there just having to go through what led him there? I'm, you know, I, I was innocent. I had brothers who didn't care for me. They sold me. And how God used this time to soften his own heart And in fact, his own softening before God is clear. From the numerous times he breaks down and weeps as he's interacting with his brothers. The text says it was because of compassion. Because of compassion on his brothers that he wept. Genesis 43, we begin to see that the brothers uh, are having a heart change. Something's changing in them. They're not the same guys that they were before. This godly grief is causing them to make things right. As they go home and they tell their dad, well, 
we can't go back unless Benjamin comes with. We can't go before the man to get food or anything because he has to be there. And Jacob's like, nope, ain't happening. And just end of discussion, it's not happening. Well, a little time goes by and, and, and Jacob gets hungry because they run out of food. And, you know, in the true man fashion, it's like, oh, I'm pretty hungry now. Why don't you go ahead and take Benjamin? Go ahead and go back to Egypt. God have mercy on you. All right, just sends them back off. All of a sudden, there's this change. But they go, and as they come, Joseph sees them, and he sees that Benjamin's with them. And he's starting to see, starting to uh, notice that there is a change. Something is happening here. But he isn't convinced fully. Sam dubbed it this rough reconciliation. As it unfolds, we see that Joseph's primary concern is their repentance to God and to their own father. So with that, let's read our text this morning, Genesis 44, starting verse 1. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sack with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up. Follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? Have you done evil in doing this? When he overtook them and he spoke, uh, spoke to them these words, they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouth of our sacks was brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then can we steal silver and gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be the Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then the men quickly lowered the sacks to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and each And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. So here we have this this setup. Joseph comes up with another test, another plan. And again, for the brothers, putting them in this position where there's nothing they can do, to hopefully, I don't know, in some way bring an equivalence to this. I mean, can you imagine, let's say, the government sets you up, planting evidence in all these places, and based on the evidence, it all points to you. So you stand before a judge who's an authority over you, and they say, based on this evidence that's outstanding, here's your punishment. On top of that, Joseph is also trying to make clear 
not only does he have the authority, but also that there is this supernatural spiritual aspect to it as well. That he's able to discern in a supernatural way, which is why he brings up the divination. Let them see and know, not only do I have authority over them, but I have this spiritual power and discernment over them as well. There's no way they're getting out of this. No way that they're going to get out of this. Now, it's interesting that the response the brothers have. And I do find it funny at times when you read through the Bible and how it just kind of blatantly will say something like, they tore their clothes, they got on their donkeys, and they went back to the city. It's like, uh, what? Like, they tore their clothes? What's going on? You know? But when you stop just for a moment and just, just let that sink in, see what, what's going on there. The brothers, okay, the brothers tear their clothes. This is a sign of an inner anguish of suffering and heartache that's often associated in the Old Testament as with mourning. This is exactly what their dad, Jacob, did when he found out that Joseph was dead. We begin to see that there is some change happening here. That the same brothers willing to get rid of Joseph, throw him in a pit and sell him into slavery, are now weeping and mourning over their youngest brother and the fact that they're probably not going to see him again. To bring this home a bit, uh, when many of you know Sean Wright, when he had passed away last December, uh, myself and and another pastor uh, went to his parents to tell them. And as we told his dad, he was just kind of a blank stare. There was nothing. But when we told his mom, she let out a cry an anguish that was so deep that it exposed just this inner suffering and heartache that she couldn't help, that only a mother could do who's lost a son. And I thought about this as these brothers are, are weeping and, 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 and tearing their clothes and mourning over the fact that their brother, they're not going to see him anymore that there has been a change in their heart, that this godly grief is doing something in them and something's different. Let's continue to read together. Verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whom's hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, 
And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left um, of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, and I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. You have taken this one also from me, and harm happens to him. You will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Shiloh. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, Then as his life is bound up with the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Shiloh. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Now, Judah, interestingly enough, speaks up here. Kind of the spokesman uh, for the group, the brothers, But what really gives him a standing to do so? Again, as you go through the the narrative of Joseph, it begins in chapter 37, and then 38 takes this detour, and it follows Judah. And what's going on there? Well, it's following Judah, and it's showing that he's a representation of the brothers and their deceptive lifestyle. It's giving us uh, the theme, continuing the theme of the blessed and the unblessed. And so Cain and Abel, uh, you have Esau and Jacob, Judah and Joseph. If you remember, Jacob was also known as the deceiver. And that sin carried over into his son's. So chapter 38 shows us this lifestyle that they're living apart from the Lord. And Judah broke faith with his family by marrying a Canaanite woman. He had raised two sons so wickedly that God himself killed them. I mean, that's so intense. He he treated his daughter-in-law as a prostitute. And remember that when the brothers sold Joseph into slavery, it was Judah who came up with the idea. He says, why don't we sell him, 
give them away. Therefore, blood is not on our hands. And then, continuing in their deception, they took Joseph's robe, they uh, slaughtered a goat, took the blood from that goat, put it all over the robe, and said, look what happened to Joseph. He's gone. Judah's sin was not against Joseph only, but also their father, Jacob. And this is what Joseph is concerned about. It's like the whole thing was a test to see, do these guys really, truly love our dad? Do they really, truly respect him? Are they still continuing in the same sin and rebellion against our father? And the only kind of repentance Joseph required was to see their repentance towards their father and their refusal to continue to cause him such sorrow. I think it's important for us to really see that in this text and and take hold of that because as Christians, as followers of the Lord, we need to understand that true repentance, turning away from sin, is primarily an issue between the sinner and God the Father. We tend to make it more about us. Well, they sinned against me. They better seek that out. Or I sinned against them. I probably should go over there and figure that out. But I'd like us to jump into God's Word a little bit together to explore this a bit. Psalm chapter 51. If you want to turn there with me. Psalms are right in the middle. Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4. Now, this is David who's writing this. He's repenting over his sin of adultery. He says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. It is against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. True repentance is realizing when I have sinned, it is against God first and foremost. And He is the one I need to go to. He is the one I need to go to and, and, and be resolved with first. And the beautiful thing is when we take time to be in the presence of God, in repentance, with a contrite heart, saying, Lord, I have sinned against you and you alone. Please forgive me. The Father is so gracious and loving. And then he says, you are forgiven. In Jesus' name, now go forgive others. Go seek forgiveness. He doesn't just leave us there, but causes us, stirs us to be in relationship with one another. Another passage, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's turn there together. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Sam referenced this uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, This passage being uh, about reconciliation. This word coming up over and over and over again throughout this passage. But being clear about what's this reconciliation message all about. Who are we being reconciled to? 
in verse 17 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Praise God. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. And then he pens just this beautiful reminder. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Based on God's word, repentance before God has to come first. And if that happens, repentance between believers will fall into place. Because again, God does not just leave us there in that place of you're forgiven. God says, now go. Share that message of reconciliation. Be reconciled with one another so that that message can continue. Judah, in his willingness to sacrifice himself for the sake of his younger brother, is being motivated by his love for his father. And this is showing, this is displaying a repentant heart. It's also exemplifying the greatest act of love that Jesus described in John 15, 13. Jesus said, Greater love is no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. And in doing so, Judah was foreshadowing the very character of Jesus who would substitute himself not for one man but for all mankind. So what do we take away from our text this morning? What, what, why does this matter? Why should we even care? I think this is a couple things or three things that were standing out to me that I wanted to share with you this morning. Um, and the first being this, that God is sovereign at all times. And I'm going to say it again. God is sovereign at all times. I think that's one of the first things that the devil attacks in us is to make us believe that God is not in control. God is not here. God does not care. That the love that you hear preached on Sunday morning that you read about in the Bible is not as big as they want to make you think it is. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. That even when our trials are lasting weeks, months, years, and God feels distant or even unloving. Let's go to Romans 8 and read the, what the truth is uh, in that. Romans chapter 8. You're welcome. <laughs> Romans chapter 8, verse 31 God is sovereign at all times. With that in mind, 
What then shall we say to these things? Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies and who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than this, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Down to verse 37, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Our trials cannot separate us from God and his love for us. And in the end, it is only because God is sovereign that Christians can be assured that nothing will separate them from God's love. We have to be reminded that God is here. He is with us. The second thing that we take away from our text this morning is there is never a hopeless situation in Christ. You're already in Romans 8. Romans 8, 28, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Spoiler alert, but in, verse, or in chapter 45 of Genesis, Joseph finally tells his brothers who he is. And Joseph is making this point that God has been working all these things out for their good. Genesis 45, verse 4 and 5. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. It was not an accident how things have played out. And God was not absent in the moment that you decided it was better off that I be sold into slavery. But God used that trial, that anguish, that pain for our good. And not just for them, but for everybody in Egypt. If you remember, Joseph being able to interpret Pharaoh's dream caused them to, what? Store up food, be ready for the famine. And because of that, Egypt became the hub where everybody came to receive life, essentially. But they needed food. God did that. God provided in that way. And God will do that for us in your life. And I encourage you, trust in that truth. 
Things might seem hopeless right now. My marriage isn't working. It's hopeless. My kids, they're hopeless. I'm never going to get over this addiction. It's hopeless. My depression is too deep. It's hopeless. Well, the Word says otherwise. And our God, who's so good, says, I'm there with you. I'm there with you. I'm there with you. You're not alone. I think the last thing from our text we see as well is there is reconciliation with God for all who repent and believe. If you turn a page in Romans, Romans 10, verse 12 and 13, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're here this morning and you do not believe in God, this is this is for you, you showed up and you said, you know, I'm just gonna check it out, but I do not believe in God. I urge you to put your faith in Jesus. To go before your God in heaven. And say, against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. And rest assured in that moment that God is so gracious to say you are forgiven and the blood of Jesus has forgiven you. If you don't believe that, go to his word. Go to him in prayer. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised from the dead and you will be saved. For those that have done so, my brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to share this this quote from Charles Spurgeon. Repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, a resolution to forsake it, It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character which makes the man love what he once hated, God, and hate what he once loved, sin. This is what we see happening in the brothers in our story this morning. That they have turned from their ways and they have learned to love and follow God and hate the sin that they had been living in for so long. I encourage you to go back and read this chapter again and see how how often these brothers who have been deceptive their whole lives are telling the truth. It's incredible to see this generational sin of deception over and over and over again that they've been living out God has wiped away and now Judah, of all people, stands up before his brother, not knowing it's him yet. Standing up before the authority and saying, this is the truth. I'm willing to take on whatever whatever you're going to give me. Whatever punishment is there for me. I'm willing to take that. And in fact, I'm willing to take my brother's punishment. I'm willing to take his blame. Please take me instead. 
That is what leads Joseph to wail and weep. Because something has changed. His brothers aren't the same anymore. Godly grief has truly gotten hold of these guys. Again, this is what we see in the brothers. This is what God is calling us to, each one of us. Whether you believe or not, be reconciled to God. Every day we go before the Lord to be reconciled before Him. Lord, Your mercies are new today. Praise You for that. For those that don't believe, Lord, I need You. Be the King of my life. This is God's word for us this morning. Each week we, uh, we take communion together. Um, as a reminder, as we, as we do this, we, we're being reminded of God's love for us, that he would send his one and only son to be broken for us, to have his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And so as we partake together, we're being reminded of that. But I would also add, we're being reminded of, the, of Jesus himself, like Judah, saying, I'll take their blame. I'll take their blame. Don't let your wrath be poured out on them, but let it be poured out on me. I'll take that for them. So be reminded of that as you come to the table. This is for the believer. If you're not a believer, again, I please Come to faith in Christ. Cry out to Him and join the fold, the family of God, and partake in this meal together. Let's pray.